And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Friday, October 30th. The day before Halloween, and PK is with us again this week, and our good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital. How are you, Pam? I'm great, gentlemen, and I'm looking outside my window, and it's beautiful blue skies and sunshine, and and you know it's a special day tomorrow because it's also a blue moon, so we're having Halloween on the blue moon. So Halloween only happens um, on the blue moon once in a blue moon, right? That's right. It'll be a fun day. Are you, uh, are you, uh, someone who celebrates Halloween and dresses up and all of that? Nope, not me. How about you, PK? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm uh, leave that for the kids. There you go. So, Pam, can you give us a quick update? We haven't spoken in two weeks, and by the way, uh, the first time we spoke about COVID with you was over seven months ago. And some of us, maybe not you, but uh, those of us that are less expert uh, thought that this uh, pandemic may may be kind of a thing of the past by now, but it's not. So uh, can you give us an update on the hospital's uh, census as it relates to COVID patients since we last spoke? I would be happy to. And I, I agree. I thought we would be at least closer to being over than we are. And, and I didn't expect to have this rapid rise again. So I was just looking back, and if we were to look back in September 22nd when we talked, we had seven inpatients with COVID, and we had um, several waiting results because of the testing issues we were having. We had had 88 deaths, and the county had 16,799 positive patients with 550 deaths, and the state had 275,735 with 8,457 deaths. And then if we move to the last time we talked, we went from the 7 to 20 patients, inpatient, and now today we are at 45 inpatients with one patient on event and four patients awaiting results. Last time we had two patients awaiting results. So that's a really significant increase in the number of patients that are in the hospital. DuPage County went from a month ago, 16,799 to Two weeks ago, 19,967 to this, this, uh, today, 24,240 patients that have been positive with COVID. The number of deaths in DuPage County went from, uh, 550 to, uh, 592 now to 617 deaths in DuPage County. And the state went from, 275, 735 to two weeks ago, 331,620, now up to 401,622. We're just going from 8,457 to 9,127, up now to 9,963. can take lightly. Um, hospitals are getting filled up. Our sister hospital, Edward, has been 
even more patients than Elmhurst has had. And which was interesting because when we first started the pandemic, Elmhurst was um, higher in, in positive inpatients for a significant amount of time. And now Edward has been for probably the last uh, two or three weeks much higher than we have been. They're in the 50s right now. And I think um, people should be taking it very seriously. Now, on the positive note, we have had um, discharges. We went from last time 593 discharges to 655 discharges, so that's a good thing. And the state recovery rate went from 96% to 97%, so that's also a good thing. Do you, um, do you happen to know how many deaths you've had total? Our deaths are... Um, 95. 95. So we went from 92 to 95. Um, boy, those are up significantly. And then, you know, I look at DuPage County two weeks ago had less than 20,000 um, positive tests over the, the last seven months, and now we're up to 24. That's an incredible increase. It's, you know, over 20% and uh, just in a two-week period. So do you, you know, the last couple times we talked – You've said that you believe and, and your colleagues believe that it's people letting their guard down. I feel like people's guard is back up a little bit now. Do you think that will reap rewards in the coming weeks? Well, we hope so, but I also keep listening to the news and listening to people wanting their kids back in school, which I understand, wanting sports to happen, which I understand. And um, the holidays coming up, and I worry that people, even though their guard is coming up, that they still are going to ignore um, what is the best way, which is to go back to that really extreme isolation. It's countries that have continued to wear masks and that have had the isolation have have been able to get this under control, and we we need to do the same thing. This is very serious right now. Any um. Updates on uh, testing capability or new tests on the horizon? I ask you this every time, and I know you're probably tired of answering it, but anything new? Um, yeah, we, we are looking at, so we still have the Abbott ID now. We still do all of the testing that we've been doing. We're doing approximately 800 tests per day. Um, but we are looking at some new antigen testing, and that's because the state has finally released antigen testing through the FDA for um, emergency use, use authorization. And so um, there has always been a number of uh, limited testing kits, and now there's more being coming available. So we're looking into that uh, through Abbott. It's called the Binax Now assay test, and so we're hoping in the next week or so we'll be able to get that into the organization. Great. Thanks. Hey, Pam, last time we talked, you mentioned your husband was uh, ill. How's he doing? Yes, so he is doing better, thank you for asking. It took about two and a half weeks for him to start having a little energy again and to not feeling miserable. Um, but over the last, I'd say, started a little bit on Sunday feeling better. In the last few days, he actually was able to do things outside and um, feel more like himself the last two days so thanks for asking how's the smallmouth bass doing that he caught it from <laughs> uh, he's not been able to see that smallmouth bass because he's been in his house <laughs> <laughs> pk how about you uh we we talked about you uh contracting the disease how are you feeling and do you have any new insights now that you're a, a couple weeks more into your uh recovery 
Um, I, you know, I, I was sort of similar to, to Joe there, but um, I, I guess I would say it was it was two good weeks or two bad weeks of um, feeling very, I guess, flu-like. Um, and then, like as I mentioned last time we talked, some kind of erratic symptoms that uh, were, you know, kind of bothersome or kind of even um, unnerving. But um, I'm I'm doing fine now. It's actually it'll be um, four weeks uh, this coming Monday, um, and um, I guess I would say that uh, the only thing I like I have a lingering uh, mild cough. Um, and I also sometimes get a little headache every now and then. Um, and I guess I do kind of sometimes feel a little foggy, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's all related to this or not, but, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's crazy to me that, uh, some people can uh, have no symptoms and some people have very severe symptoms or even die from this, but and everything in between. And so the unpredictability is, is amazing to me. Um, Pam, let's, let's talk about the hospital. Um, at, at the hospital, are the patients, uh, the COVID patients and non-COVID patients required to wear, wear masks when they're in their rooms by themselves, for example? Patients do not have to wear masks when they're by themselves in their room. But if the staff member is doing um, something that brings them close to the patient and the patient and, you know, it's been positive with COVID. We, we do ask them to cover, to wear a mask, and if they can tolerate it. Staff are covered, though, so if they can't tolerate it, they have special equipment that helps them, and the non-COVID patients as well. Um, we do ask them if the staff, if they're coughing and the staff feel uncomfortable, for them to wear a mask when the staff are in the room or visitors are in the room. Um, and I did want to talk about visitors for a minute, but I, I also want you to know, so I had a colonoscopy on Monday. I know you're thrilled about that. But the only reason Thanks I brought sure, that right? up is for two reasons. One, I had my second negative COVID test. So having been around my husband, I did not get COVID. It's three weeks after exposure. We know I won't have it, but I had two negative COVID tests one week apart and did not get it. And I think that's interesting how you know, some people catch it and some people don't catch it. Right, right. And the other thing is um, when I had my colonoscopy, I did wear my mask all the way into the procedure, and they just put the oxygen underneath my mask. So um, we, are, we are doing it for everybody to keep everybody safe. Um, visitors, we are, have, because of the surge in patients coming into the hospital, we have gone back to changing our visiting uh, rules. So non-COVID COVID patients will no longer be able to have visitors again. Because, and part of it is because we couldn't get the visitors to keep wearing their masks like we needed and to stay in the room and not walk around. The other reason is um, the non-COVID patients will only be allowed to have one visitor instead of two. And it's one person designated. It's not one at a time. It's one person. And that is so we can monitor and keep everybody safe in the hospital. And we're sorry, we know how hard that is on patients, but while this is getting so rapidly um, progressing and you know our employees, we have to keep safe and we have to have them here. So we have to do everything we can to prevent the spread. And so we're gonna have to go back to that for now. As soon as we can eliminate that and have people come in again, we will. But for now, that's what we're doing. 
I would guess that you've had some expectant mothers that were close to delivery and they were at the hospital to deliver uh, their baby and they tested positive. Um, that That's an assumption by me, but if that's the case, how does uh, labor and delivery handle that patient? So, yes, we have had, not a lot, thank goodness, but we have had people who have tested positive while they're delivering, and we do test them beforehand so we know that. Um, we have, we use the N95 respirator mask. We do that even when somebody is not positive, when they're at the point where they're doing the, the heavy breathing and yelling and at the delivery part because we want to keep the staff safe. Um, and we do have a, a negative pressure room that can be used for um, mothers that are positive that will keep all the other people on the unit safe. So we, we follow all the proper PPE uh, guidance by the CDC to keep everybody safe when a mother is delivering. And then we do um, separate the mother from the baby until we can figure out what's going on with the baby to make see if they have COVID or not, um, you know, to keep the baby safe. Okay, Pam, what's a negative pressure room? The negative pressure room is a room where the air is pulled to the outside and does not go into the halls. Um, so it's, it's pulling air out of the room but not into the hallways. And it's a special ventilation HVAC system that we use. Um, so we right now have 39 rooms in the hospital that are negative pressure rooms. Mm. Um, and they're spread throughout the hospital. And then we have been able to create negative pressure units where all the air in the unit pulls out. Um, so we have a few of those as well. So we've heard a lot in the media about herd immunity. And, I, and I've Googled it, and I, I'm not sure I really understand it. Can you explain what herd immunity is? Yeah, it's the, it's the uh, resistance of the spread of an infection because the population has a significant number of people who have already developed immunities. And so there's not as many uh, potential people to get sick. And so when there's not enough people getting sick, then, you know, it can't jump as quickly from one person to the other, and it eventually fizzles out. So it's, um, so a vaccination can cause a herd immunity by having enough people vaccinated or enough people get sick that causes the herd immunity to happen. And in history, measles, mumps, polio, and chickenpox are all diseases that were brought under control because of herd immunity. And it's probably just a guess as to whether herd immunity comes into effect with COVID, right? Well, it will. It can. It's just how we're not anywhere near where herd immunity will happen. You need a significant percentage of the population that is either vaccinated or has gotten the disease and, and developed the antibodies to have herd immunity. And we're not there yet. So is the hospital involved in any type of uh, contact tracing that we hear about? Yeah, we do contact tracing all the time. The hospital actively um, does contact tracing both internally with our own employees when if an employee becomes positive, and then we work externally with the um, Illinois Department of Public Health. So we contact trace anybody that the employee was involved with if they turned up positive or if they were exposed to a positive patient without using protective equipment. We do the tracing internally. And then we um, contact the Illinois Department of Public Health, and they do the tracing for anything that happened out in the community related to that employee or related to that patient. 
So both happens, and um, it's very important so we can kind of track who's getting it and who's not having it. I know, um, so when my husband was exposed, I was reported to the IDPH because I had seen him, and then I had to do tracing. They got texts from IDPH every day about what was I doing and what did I have any symptoms, and that's all part of contact tracing, and you have to go through that for 14 days post-exposure. Have you heard of any cases where the contact tracing was helpful, like uh, somebody was contacted and didn't realize they had it and they did or something like that? Yes, that happens very frequently. Hey, is there um, any evidence or, that a high percentage of the COVID-infected people are likely caught that disease, like in a restaurant, for such a hot topic these days? <laughs> well, we've seen it when we do the contact tracing that they came from restaurants or bars because it was the gathering at that restaurant or bar. So it was a group of people, and they were in there eating together, and then they got it. And then other people, in like waiters and waitresses, got it. Um, so there is evidence of that. But the thing is, when you're in groups and you can wear your mask all the time and stay six feet apart, you're, you're less likely to get it. But when you're eating and you're in a group, even if you're six feet apart, you have your mask off and you're, you know, the likelihood of the disease spreading then is much higher. Right, right. So when people are at home and they're suffering from COVID, is there a risk of dehydration like, like when you have the flu? Yes, actually, many people have come into the hospital who have COVID, but the reason they're in the hospital is some dehydration. And that's really related to high fevers or people who have nausea and vomiting or they just don't feel like eating or drinking. And I'm sure you probably, when you were feeling your most miserable, was not too thrilled with eating and drinking, especially if you couldn't taste anything. And you right. have to stay hydrated. Right. So we know that the hospital long ago started offering routine surgical services again that they hadn't in the beginning of the pandemic and we've talked a lot about how safe it is at the hospital because of all the precautions you and your staff are taking. But are there any routine services that are not being offered as a result of the pandemic that might have been last year? No, not at this time. We are um, still doing everything that we normally do. We're still making sure we are very safe with everybody coming in. That might change if the governor makes some rule change, but we're hoping he doesn't because people need to get care and need to be checked out and need to have their routine procedures done, as well as it helps us be able to stay financially viable, to be able to be here to treat everybody. So we're hoping we don't have to close. The other reason why we might have to close something is if we don't have enough staff to take care of our sick patients, we may have to close just to be able to move staff around to be able to make sure we can provide safe care. But we're hoping that doesn't happen as well. Hey, Pam, there's so much talk about donating blood these days or plasma. And um, I was wondering, why, why are blood banks the place to do that as opposed to doing it right at the hospital? Yeah, most hospital laboratories like the ones at Elmhurst have a transfusion service rather than a blood bank or blood center service. Because what happens there is it's, um, they ha it's the storing of the blood components. It's, there's a lot of regulations around how uh, blood is drawn and, um, and how you have to store it. And it, it's just not viable for a hospital to do that. We, we work with the blood banks and the blood centers and we hold a lot of blood drives to help collect, but we can't do all the storing and, and all the manufacturing. 
Pam, I've spoken to a few people in the past four or five months that that are friends, and um, they'll mention that they have some little cold or something like that, and immediately they deny that they could have COVID. And of course, we're all we're all on guard right now every time somebody has a sniffle or a cough. And um, I kind of get the feeling some well, I know as a fact a few of these people have ended up testing positive. And I kind of get the feeling that there's a stigma associated with admitting you had COVID as far as how you're living your life, et cetera. Do you, do you feel that there is a stigma about that? And what, what might we suggest people do? I, um, I think it's funny because of course I'm the one that denied my husband was sick as well. So, and I don't know whether it's from a stigma or more, you know, just uncertainty about some of the symptoms. And I think that's what a lot of people go through. I do think there is a stigma out there. I think people are afraid, um, afraid, number one, to even think that they might have it, so they don't want to think about it, but also afraid that somebody won't want to be around them or won't want to talk to them or will be afraid of them. I've heard it, um, you know, even here when I knew my husband was positive, everybody just immediately stayed away from me and didn't want to be near me. And I understand that, but it is isolating to people. And um, so I think we have to make sure we're reaching out even more to people when they are uh, sick, even if we're not going to their home, but make them feel like they're still cared about. I think that's really important because it's a very frightening disease and you don't know what your course of treatment is going to be. And I think the other part is people, um, you know, they think they ask questions about, you know, where did you catch the disease? Why weren't you more careful? And they, they feel responsible for having caught the disease when you may not even know where or when and how you caught the disease, and you may never find out. And, and so it's, it's not something you could have taken personal accountability for. You may have done everything right, and it still happened. So I think we have to be cautious on our judgment and just be generous with our spirit of caring for people who are getting sick or who have been around somebody who's sick. I, I definitely experienced that when I returned to work after, um, you know, my isolating for two weeks. I, um, people, people, people would step back when they saw me coming and, you know, they're wearing a mask. I'm wearing a mask. And I, at this point I'm, I'm not contagious, but they don't, they don't know that they just knew that I had it. Um, so, you know, it makes me think twice and in, in, in a way it's good. It's almost ironic because it's uh, at that point it's too late. I'm not contagious anymore, and it would have been better if people stepped back from each other uh, before the disease started to spread. Obviously, um, but it's uh, it, it it wasn't a it, you know it's funny when people don't know that I had it then it was not an issue. But if if you bring it up, then all of a sudden they do take a couple steps back just to I guess it's a, a, a human reaction is all it really is. I was going to ask Pam about that, and uh, I think you gave the perfect answer. You've experienced it firsthand, and I've also been around some folks that have um, had COVID and recovered, and they've expressed the same thing to me, that they uh, feel like folks are uh, keeping extra distance even a month after they've recovered. So uh, that that's an interesting phenomenon. Pam, uh, we do have people listen to this podcast, and I had a question from an a listener who's on Medicare that asked, um, it's a non-COVID related question, but what's the difference between Medicare and Medicare Advantage? Because uh, some doctors are 
are dropping their coverage of pure Medicare patients and, and requiring them to have Medicare Advantage. So could you explain that? Yes, um, and I, I, I do, I have seen a letter that went out from one of the doctor groups that they were doing that, um, which, you know, there's plenty of doctors that will still treat patients with plain Medicare, so if you want to keep plain Medicare, you can. The difference between having Medicare and having Medicare Advantage is Medicare Advantage is um, can limit which organization you can go to which um, prescription coverages there is. Where Medicare is, is you can go anywhere you want, and it's, it's an open, um, there's no directing you in terms of where you get treatment. But, it, you know, it, what Medicare Advantage does give you is there's usually more services and benefits within Medicare Advantage, and the physician then manages their patient's care because they have more things available to them to manage it, but they're trying to do it in a way that's more economical for the government so they get you know, specific hospitals to work with them or other organizations to work with them, and then you're limited where you can go. So it almost sounds like an HMO or a PPO for Medicare patients. Correct. Okay. We have to start thinking about that, Rich, as we age. Especially you. Uh, you guys are- <laughs> <laughs> Hey, here's another question that's not exactly COVID-related, but uh, seasonal. Um, is there an easy way for someone to get an annual flu shot at the hospital without going through their doctor? Um, yes. They, all they have to do is contact their primary care doctor, and they can get it scheduled. They don't have to go see their doctor. and Or they could go to our immediate cares, and they are giving flu shots there as well. They can have just a flu shot visit at the immediate care. Well, Pam, I want to thank you for spending time with us again today. I want to... Keep uh, your husband in our uh, prayers that he continues to get better and PKU too. Um, and is there any uh, anything that the listeners can be doing uh, to do their part as this uh, pandemic seems to ramp up a little bit more? Well, again, I would say reach out to anybody you know who is ill or who has family members who have been ill and just offer support and, and be caring and understanding. Continue to use your mask and wash your hands and and please think about the holidays and what you're doing because we do not want this to keep going and we do want it to end and until we have a vaccine that is a vaccine that people will take and, and is um, proven to be effective, we will have to continue to do the things that are not as much fun like wearing masks and washing our hands and staying away from people. Hey, brother, can I interject one more question? Sure. Yeah, I'm wondering with tomorrow being... Um, Day. Do you have any advice for people in terms of dealing with that? Should they locate a participate or should they do it carefully? Uh, what do you suggest? You know, I, I have, I can't tell you what to do. I would say I would be more inclined to having an event that's outside, limited people, and some activities where you're not like touching the same things. And it's going to be really complicated. I'm not. I would not recommend people going door to door and going to homes and putting your hand in a, in a bowl that everybody else's hands are going in. So um, I think it's going to have to be a little bit different than it has been in the past. Okay. I didn't mean to throw you a curveball there either, but it, just curious since uh, I was thinking about this weekend. Well, thanks so much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon, and uh, have a safe Halloween, Pam. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so very much. much. And I will talk to you again.
Hey, friends, this is former Elmhurst City Manager Tom Borchert. Hey, and whenever I'm back at Elmhurst, I look up at that Butterfield Water Tower, and I am so thankful I wasn't the one who gave him the keys to get up there. And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. Did you know that one ponce a time, Elmhurst was home to a legendary NASCAR driver? In the 1960s, local boy Fred Lorenzen arrived on the scene to become the first northerner to become a NASCAR champion. With his movie star looks, cool professional demeanor, and skill on the track, Lorenzen blazed like a comet in the racing world. Known to his fans as Fearless Freddy, the Golden Boy, and the Elmhurst Express, Lorenzen collected 26 checkered flags in his storied career. All right, so let's dig a little deeper. Um, even as a boy, Fred Lorenzen dreamed of auto racing. His go-kart racing was the terror of the neighborhood until local police actually seized it. On warm summer days as a young man, he would listen to NASCAR races on the radio from a tent in the family yard. And by the time he was 18, he had already begun auto racing on dirt tracks and also dabbled a little bit in drag racing as well. In 1958-1959, he posted back-to-back -back wins in the United States Auto Club Stock Car Division Championships. Uh, Lorenzen had tried to break into the NASCAR circuit as an independent driver, but it proved too expensive. But Lorenzen's blazing speed and style had caught the eye of Ralph Moody of the famed Holman Moody Ford Racing Group. Moody called Lorenzen on Christmas Eve of 1960 to offer him the ultimate gift, a chance to drive for Holman Moody Ford in the 1961 NASCAR season. Lorenzen did not disappoint. In the 61 season, his daring high-low maneuver on turn two of the Darlington race rocketed him past Curtis Turner on final lap to victory. The gutsy move earned him the nickname Fearless Freddy. Humble and hardworking, Lorenzen would arrive at 7 a.m. at the race shop and work side by side with his crew on the engine. Working on the car, he maintained, got him closer to the vehicle and gave him an edge. He was known to write the word think and post it on the dash as a reminder to constantly scan the horizon for opportunity when racing. Now, Lorenzen's good looks, nice manners, and regard for the fans helped his northerner break into a southern sport of NASCAR and earned him another nickname, the Golden Boy. By 1963, the Golden Boy proved he had the Midas touch. With six wins, 21 top five finishes, and 25 top 10 finishes, he became the first NASCAR driver to earn $100,000 in a single season, about the equivalent of $850,000 today. He would prove to be the only NASCAR driver to win 20 races in his first 100 starts. In the 65 season, his number 28 Lafayette Ford cruised to victory at the Daytona 500 and the Atlanta 600. He would win the Atlanta 600 three years in a row, a first in NASCAR history. Over time, life on the road wore on Lorenzen, though. He retired from NASCAR in 1967, returning briefly to the sport in 1970. With his good looks and charm, he tried his hand in Hollywood with parts in three racing-themed movies. Eventually, he'd turn that charm into another successful career in real estate. But the passion for racing never left him, and NASCAR never forgot the Elmhurst Express. In 1998, Fred Lorenzen was named one of NASCAR's top 50 drivers. He was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2015. Racer Darrell Waltrip described him as the Jeff Gordon of his day. Winston Kelly, the executive director of the NASCAR Hall of Fame, noted he excelled on big tracks and big races. Now, if you'd like to learn a little more about Fred Lorenzen, 
you can visit us at the Elmhurst History Museum. Our exhibit, by all accounts, um, has a section on the Elmhurst Express, including photographs, stories, film footage, even one of his trophies. And the museum gift shop has a limited number of autographed posters we'd like to honor our local racing legend. Wow, Dave, that's really cool. You know, he lived a couple blocks away from me when I was growing up, and I used to walk by his house almost every day on the way to school. And I remember thinking it was really cool. Matter of fact, he inspired me so much, I set up a separate bank account to go to racing school someday. I ended up using that to go to college, but so be it. It's pretty exciting to have him from our town. Thanks a lot, I think Dave. so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, me racing's in your future. <laughs> <laughs> Better hurry up. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.